Coming up, a message from the pulpit of Bethel Primitive Baptist Church in Calabash, North Carolina, by Elder Michael Goins. For information about Bethel Church, please visit our website at BethelPBC.us. My mind has settled, I trust it's of the Lord, on a passage in Isaiah chapter 3, reading the 10th and the 11th verses, the Old Testament prophecy of Isaiah chapter 3, the 10th and the 11th verses. Say ye to the righteous that it shall be well with him, for they shall eat the fruit of their doings. Woe unto the wicked, it shall be ill with him, for the reward of his hands shall be given him. I love these verses that give instruction to the preacher concerning the content of his message. We see a verse like that in the 40th chapter of Isaiah when the voice told John the Baptist to cry, and he said, What shall I cry? And the Lord said, I want you to say this, All flesh is grass, and the glory of man is as the flower of the field, but the word of the Lord shall stand forever. And here's a similar divine instruction. Say to the righteous, Tell them, the Lord says, that it shall be well with him. This text is like the Israelites' pillar of fire when they came to the Red Sea, which gave light to the people of God, but darkness to the Egyptians. This text brings a cheering light to God's people. Say to the righteous, it shall be well with him. That's a cheering word. But here's a dreadful word. It will be darkness, this verse indicates to the ungodly. He says, but to the wicked, woe unto them, for it shall be ill with him. So we have both an oracle of weal or blessing and an oracle of woe or cursing in this passage. And notice the passage divides humanity into two classes of people. I think the Bible's simplicity needs to be recovered in our day when everyone is identifying as a different thing or a different kind of person. Somebody identifies by their ancestral country. They say, my ancestors come from this continent or from this country. Many people identify themselves by 30 different genders. The Bible teaches only two. The devil complicates everything, but the Bible simplifies it, and it says, really, there are only two classes of people, the righteous and the wicked. That's the biblical paradigm. According to the Word of God, all humanity can be divided into the woman's seed or the seed of the serpent. In Genesis chapter 3, you may remember the Lord said to the serpent, I will put enmity between thy seed and her seed. And of course, that's a prophecy of the coming Messiah, the woman's seed. And he has these two different categories, and it carries over into the very next chapter of Genesis, chapter 4, where we find Cain, who John tells us was of that wicked one, but Abel, Jesus says, is righteous Abel. So you have the righteous and the wicked, these two categories. Then you come forward in the book of Genesis and you see the pre-flood world that did evil in the sight of the Lord and incurred his judgment, but Noah 
And his family found grace in the eyes of the Lord, the wicked and the righteous, these two categories. You come forward to the book of Exodus and you learn about the children of Israel who were God's people and the Egyptians who were judged by God. And even into the New Testament, Jesus teaches that in the parable of the wheat and the tares, that all humanity either belongs to the Lord and will be gathered into his barn at the grand harvest of the last day, or they are tares who will be burned in the fire. You see, the great distinction in humanity is not a difference of class or race or economic status or educational attainment. It's a distinction in terms of a person's relationship to God, whether they are righteous or whether they are wicked. Now this text says, say to the righteous, it shall be well with the righteous. And the meaning of the word well is the opposite, of course, of the word ill in the next verse. It shall be ill to the wicked, but to the righteous it shall be well with them. It speaks of the welfare, the well-being, the happiness and prosperity of the righteous. Sometimes people have said in my hearing, when a problem arises or maybe something goes wrong, in an attempt to comfort someone else, they'll say, it's all going to be okay. You ever heard that? And I've often wondered how they know that, you know, it's all going to be okay. It might not be okay, but people, you know, say it just, it's all going to work out as if I have some inside track into the situation. It's all going to be okay. But you see, when God says it's going to be okay, then you can bank on it. The Lord does know. And the Lord says to his people, to the righteous, it shall be well with the righteous. But woe unto the wicked, for it shall be ill with him. And the principle that is taught in this verse, my friends, is that however things go in this world, in the final analysis, it shall be well with the righteous. I want to say that this is a promise that's true in the ultimate sense for all of God's people. That is, ultimately speaking, it's going to be okay. At last, it will turn out just right for God's children. It shall be well with the righteous. Now, if you're like so many who live for the present moment, you know, like Esau, they sell their future for one morsel of meat. That is, the temporary, the current need is more important than the long term. If you're like so many who've lost sight of the value of anticipating heavenly bliss, if you understand what the Bible teaches that this world is just a blip on the radar screen and eternity will never end, then you're a blessed character. But so many in our culture have lost sight of the big picture because they're only concerned about the present moment. And if you're like those people, I suggest that this may be little comfort to you. But I do say to all of God's people, my friends, it's going to be okay for the righteous in the long run. It shall be. Notice the future tense. It shall be well with the righteous. And the key word in this verse is the word righteous. Who are they? Well, I think we get an answer to that in a parallel verse to this one in Ecclesiastes chapter 8 and the 12th verse. For the wise man says, 
Though a sinner do evil a hundred times, and his days be prolonged, yet surely I know that it shall be well with them that fear God, which fear before him. Notice similar language, it shall be well with those who fear the Lord. Who are the righteous? They are people who fear God. Now you know, don't you, that man by nature is not a God-fearing person. In our natural state, there is not this reverence and awe in the presence of God. By nature, man is antagonistic to God. He doesn't respect God. He's like Pharaoh who said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? That's the attitude of the depraved sinner. By nature, man is not a God-fearing person. He's not righteous. Romans 3.10 says, There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. He says they are together become unprofitable. They are all gone out of the way. There is no fear of God before their eyes. By nature, man doesn't respect God, love God, seek God, want anything to do with God. He's not righteous in and of himself. See, that's the thing. Somebody says, everybody has a spark of divinity. According to the Bible, that's not true. There's not an island of righteousness in the worst of people. There's not a little hint of the divine breath in man by nature. By nature, man is totally, completely in soul, mind, body, will. He's depraved. He's fallen. He's antagonistic and averse to God. In other words... Apart from grace, there's only one class of people. They're all wicked. What I'm saying is, had God not changed our hearts, had God not intervened onto the scene of human history, after Adam's transgression, all of humanity would have been in hell, would have been judged for their sins. Ephesians 2, 3 says it like this, wherein in times past you walked according to the course of this world according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. You and I are included in that verse, my friends. Just like everybody else, we are children of wrath. That is, we're headed for divine judgment. We deserve God's punishment by nature. We're not righteous. We're all wicked. And had he not reached down and plucked us from eternal burnings, had he not plucked us as a firebrand from the fire, lifted us from the dunghill of iniquity, had the Lord not intervened, we would have all perished eternally. You say, well, what about the good deeds that man has done? Apart from grace, they're all self-serving. Isaiah describes it like this in the 64th chapter in the 6th verse. All our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. We are all as an unclean thing. Our iniquities like the wind do carry us away. We fade as a leaf. He says, by nature, even the things that appear to be good on the surface, yet their motives are wrong and they're like filthy rags before God. So here's the point. If it's going to be okay for the righteous, but nobody's righteous, then it's not going to be okay for anybody, right? It shall be ill with the wicked. That's where we would have been had the Lord not made us righteous. And here's the good news of the gospel. When you find somebody designated as righteous in the Bible, my beloved, it must necessarily be due to an alien righteousness 
that is a righteousness outside of ourselves, outside of the individual. It's a righteousness that comes to us from another that has been imputed to us by the grace of God. I love Jeremiah 23, 6 and its companion verse, Jeremiah 33, 16, which says, In that day, this is the name whereby he shall be called, and notice it's all capital letters, the Lord our righteousness. That's his name. He is Jehovah Sidkinu is the Hebrew name, the Lord our righteousness. You see, we don't have any righteousness except in him. Isaiah 45, 24 says it like this, In the Lord shall all the seed of Israel be justified and shall glory. The Lord is our righteousness and our strength. Interestingly, that passage in Jeremiah 23, 6, which says his name is the Lord our righteousness, 10 chapters and 10 verses later, from Jeremiah 23, 6 to Jeremiah 33, 16, says, this is the name whereby she shall be called the Lord our righteousness. Now maybe you scratch your head, you say, Brother Mike, there's an error in my Bible. It says she instead of he. The verse in Jeremiah 23 said, he shall be called the Lord our, now it says she shall be called. Somebody put the letter S in there, it shouldn't have been put in there. I'm telling you, the bride has taken on the husband's name. The bride of Christ wears his name. His name is the Lord our righteousness. Her name, my beloved, is the Lord our righteousness. In other words, we're not righteous in and of ourselves. There's nothing in you or in me that is righteous before God. And if there's any righteousness about us, it's because the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ during his spotless life and his substitutionary death, his active and his passive obedience has been imputed or credited to your account and mine. When God looks at my account, he doesn't see me in a deficit. Now that's where I was by nature and you were too. 10,000 talents in debt without a farthing to pay. That is, my beloved, we were bankrupt before God, but Jesus has not only cleared the deficit, but he's imputed his righteousness to our account. He's clothed us in his robes of righteousness, if I can mix my metaphors. You know the picture in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve sinned, God hid their nakedness with the skin of a slain animal. He clothed them with another's garment. And may I say that's exactly what salvation is, in which you and I have been clothed in the perfect righteousness of Jesus. I love this verse. In Isaiah 61, I think it is, verse 10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he hath clothed me with the garment of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom decketh himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorneth herself with her jewels. I will praise the Lord because he's clothed me. I don't have to stand before him naked in my own righteousness because, my beloved, I have nothing to plead before him. But he has taken away the filthy rags of my own deeds and he has clothed me with the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ so that when the Lord looks at you or at me, he sees us as everything Christ is. He sees us as righteous as Jesus is. What Jesus did on the cross has been credited to you. He paid your sin debt. 
He kept the law that you could never keep and he did it on your behalf and you get the credit for it. I don't know a better deal than that, do you? That's good news. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 puts it like this. For God has made Christ to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. How much of your righteousness does Jesus Christ comprise? Every bit of it. We have none in and of ourselves. You say, well, I've done some good things, Brother Mike. It's not enough. Only Jesus, what he did, has atoned for your sins and has made you everything that the law requires you to be in the sight of God. So the text says it shall be well with the righteous, but here's the problem. Nobody's righteous in and of himself. So the text is talking about God's people. The text is talking about those that Christ represented on the cross and satisfied the law in their stead. He met the penalty of it, and he lived up to the precept of it on their behalf. And when you find somebody in the Bible that's designated as righteous, it's necessarily because the righteousness of Jesus has been imputed to him. Our sins were charged to Christ. His righteousness was credited to us. That's the wonderful exchange of Calvary. To those who have Christ as their righteousness, my beloved, here's what our text is teaching. A glorious future is prepared for them. It shall be well with the righteous. Matthew chapter 13 says it like this in the 41st verse. The Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and them which do iniquity, and shall cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then shall the righteous shine as the sun in the kingdom of their Father, who hath ears to hear, let him hear. My beloved, the righteous are going to shine as brilliantly as the sun in the portals of heavenly bliss because of the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ. In other words, it's going to be okay in the end for you. It's going to turn out just right. Even though the righteous suffer ill accommodations and circumstances and even treatment in this world, when they get to heaven... It will all be glory by and by. Luke 16, 19 tells the story of the rich man and Lazarus. There was a certain rich man clothed in purple and fine linen. He's wealthy. And he fared sumptuously every day, it says. And that simply means he lived extravagantly. And there was a certain beggar. Notice the contrast between the wealthy rich man who is living very luxuriously and extravagantly and the beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate. He's a homeless man, full of sores, and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. He just wanted the rich man's leftovers. He wanted his garbage that he threw out. It says, moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. Animals showed him more mercy than the rich man did. The rich man's only self-concerned. He's only interested in himself. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. That's a Jewish euphemism for paradise. And the rich man also died and was buried. Now notice it doesn't say the beggar was buried. It just says he was carried. But the rich man was buried. And in hell, the rich man lifted up his eyes. And he saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. He saw this 
heavenly scene. Now, it never says the beggar looked down and saw the rich man, but it says the rich man looked up and saw Lazarus, the beggar, who was now in paradise. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus, send the beggar. Now, this is pretty audacious. You think about it. He's not really worthy. I need a servant down here. Send him that he might dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. Who's he thinking about? Who's the rich man interested in? Who's he concerned about? Himself. He's still thinking of himself. He's not thinking of Lazarus. In fact, Lazarus in his mind is nothing more than a servant who could help him out a little bit. That beggar that I was embarrassed by and never did help, now... He's gone to paradise and I'm down here. Would you send him down here to help me? That's the kind of attitude of the ungodly. And I want you to notice that Abraham said, Son, remember in thy lifetime thou receivest thy good things and Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted and thou art tormented. Now there are many, many lessons that we could glean from this. But one is simply that although God's people might suffer ill accommodations and circumstances and ill treatment in this world, I'll tell you, a glorious future awaits us. It shall be well with the righteous. Romans 8.18 puts it like this, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. That is, there is nothing to compare it with. It's like the Trinity. Every illustration falls short. Well, heavenly glory so far outdistances the problems of this life. You see, I've had some heavy problems. They are nothing compared to the bliss that awaits us by and by. The hymn writer put it like this, just one glimpse of him in glory will all the toils of life repay. Do you believe that? I do. You'll forget every complaint down here after just the briefest glimpse of the lovely face of Jesus. Heaven, my beloved, is real and it's something we need to think about and keep in mind because it will be okay for the righteous by and by. It shall be well with the righteous. And God's people need to learn that eternity matters right now. One of the ministers that I've enjoyed following and reading after in this world used to say, right now counts forever. And I always had a little trouble with that, you know. What you do right now is going to have eternal implications. always had a little trouble with that because it seems to suggest salvation by works, doesn't it? Right now, does it really count forever? I know our lives are significant right now, but it doesn't mean that what you do right now has eternal ramifications I'll tell you what has eternal ramifications for God's people. It's what Christ did in this world. But I'll tell you the opposite is certainly true as far as I'm concerned. Forever counts for right now. Eschatology matters now. We should learn, my friends, to think about what awaits us to give us the strength and the encouragement and the guidance and direction to live right now. Eternity matters right now. That's what he's saying. I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not even worthy to be compared. Somebody said that after just 10 seconds in heaven, we will be ashamed that we ever complained. Do you struggle with the murmuring germ? Do you have uh, the habit of complaint? You know, we're living in a world where people are so angry. 
Everywhere you turn, people are just upset and they're ready to come to blows and they're fighting for themselves and ready to call somebody else out for not using the appropriate pronoun or whatever. <laughs> I mean, people have lost their minds as far as treating other people with civility and respect and just human decency. We're living in an angry world. I, I want to say for God's people, my beloved, we have everything to look forward to. You say, well, my life right now is difficult. But if you could just understand that after just 10 seconds in heaven, it'll all be worth it. Just one glimpse of him in glory will all the toils of life repay. It's true, my friends. You'll say, I had it a lot easier than I thought I did. And even if I had ill accommodations, yet I realize now that I wasn't home yet. You've heard the story about the missionaries that came back from serving on foreign soil and they were on the same flight as some dignitaries and celebrities and there was a great crowd there to meet the celebrities and the dignitaries and to celebrate them. But there was nobody there to meet this man and his wife who'd been on foreign soil for so long. And the wife said to the husband, honey, I'm a little disappointed that nobody was here to meet us. We had to get our own taxi to go home and nobody was here to welcome us back. He said, well, honey, we're not home yet. We're not home yet. When we get home, when I get home, there'll be welcome aplenty. There'll be happiness and love to receive me into the presence of God and you too. It shall be well with the righteous. Tell them, tell the people, say to the righteous, it shall be well with them. Indeed, my beloved, if Jesus Christ is your righteousness, you have a bright future. And one reason that's true is because your biggest problem has already been resolved. Psalm 32 verse 1 says, Blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven, whose iniquity is pardoned. And he says, blessed is that man. That word blessed is an oracle of wheel, well-being, welfare, prosperous. It speaks of prosperity. It speaks of happiness. It speaks of fulfillment. Blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven. Did you know the crown jewel for the Christian, for the believer, is the understanding that our sins have been pardoned and forgiven for Jesus' sake. My beloved, never get over the fact that God would forgive the likes of you, that he would cancel your sin debt, that he would freely pardon you, that he would lift your sins off of you and carry them away through the sacrificial merit of Jesus Christ. Colossians 2.13 speaks of the blessing of forgiveness when he says, you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with Christ, having forgiven you all trespasses. Notice that word all. Your sins of omission, your sins of commission, your sins of deepest, darkest dye, your little white sins that you thought were not that big of a deal. He's forgiven you all your trespasses, all of your words, all of your thoughts, all of your deeds, past, present, and future, were born by Jesus Christ on the cross. For he blotted out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us and was contrary to us. He took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. You know, there was a placard nailed to the cross that Jesus died on. It said, King of the Jews, and it said it in three languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. 
But I'm telling you, there was something else nailed to the cross that day, and it was your sins and mine. And those sins were dealt with once and for all, and they were taken out of the way. You say, Brother Mike, I just don't understand the Bible. Well, can you understand this? Taking our sins out of the way. He has removed them from us as far as the east is from the west. He has canceled the debt. He has cast our sins into the depths of the sea, never to be remembered against us again. My beloved, the reason it shall be well with the righteous is because their biggest problem has already been dealt with. You say, preacher, I've got a lot of problems right now. I've got relational difficulties. I have financial problems. I have health problems. I'm telling you, your biggest problem is the sin problem. And Jesus Christ has already dealt with that. That's why whatever happens right now is okay because, my beloved, it will ultimately be well. Our biggest problem has already been resolved. He's already come out of the grave. And because he lives, we shall live also. Death is not even the ultimate tragedy because, my beloved, for the believer, Jesus Christ has been there. He softened and sweetened that place. He's already gone before us, and therefore we know that that enemy, that serpent, that dreadful monster has been defanged. And he cannot do any permanent damage to God's children. Though death may scare us, yet we know it doesn't have eternal implications for the people of God. It shall be well with the righteous, for Jesus Christ has already removed our sin debt. Indeed, my beloved, what comforting words are these. No wonder Samuel Davies, the hymn writer, said, Great God of wonders, all thy ways are matchless, godlike, and divine. But the fair glories of thy grace, more godlike and unrivaled, shine. For who is a pardoning God like thee, and who has grace so rich and free? In wonder lost, with trembling joy, we take the pardon of our God, pardon for crimes of deepest dye. A pardon bought with Jesus' blood. Oh, may this strange, this matchless grace, this godlike miracle of love, fill the whole earth with grateful praise and all the angelic choirs above, who is a pardoning God like thee, and who has grace so rich and free. My beloved, it shall be well with the righteous, because Jesus Christ has borne their punishment. Therefore, none can accuse... Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? You say, Brother Mike, I've got a lot of critics. Well, before the throne of God, none can accuse or indict the child of grace, for he has justified, he has redeemed them. None can condemn. Who is he that condemneth? He asked that question in Romans chapter 8. It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who's even at the right hand of God. And then he asks, who shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? My beloved, it, what could happen to you in this life that could separate you from God's everlasting love? Nothing that happens in this world can change the everlasting well-being of the righteous. This is the cheering word the gospel preachers instructed in our text to give to God's children. You say, well, Brother Mike, God's children are not immune from trouble and pain and even death in this world. What do you mean it shall be well with the righteous? What I mean is, what does it matter? 
if God be for us, who can be against us? Notice that verse does not say if God be for us, no one will be against you will have problems you will have enemies you will have conflicts you will have difficulties along the way but what does it matter if god is for us man can kill the body but after that there's no more that they can do there's more to us than a body you see our bodies my beloved are frail but you know the inward man is renewed day by day while we look not at the things that are seen but at the things that are not seen And that brings us to this important application this morning. If this is a promise true in the ultimate sense for all of God's children, if, yes, in the future it shall be well with the righteous, and there's tremendous comfort in that fact, I wonder if you can say right now, this morning, my friend, it is well. Yes, it shall be well, but can you say today by faith, it is well with my soul? See, it's not, Brother Mike, I'm tied in knots, I'm upset, I'm discontent, I have inward turmoil, it's not okay with me right now. Oh, if you could but see what it will be. If you could but see that he will take care of you, that he will guide you with his counsel through this world and then afterward receive you to glory. That's what Psalm 73 verse 24 says. That he will take care of you, he will lead you all the way. And then when you get to heaven, you'll be received into glory. If you could but see that, the perspective of faith helps us to say right now, it is well with my soul. You know, that's what the Shunammite woman said in 2 Kings 4.26. Elisha, you know, was used by God to give her a blessing. And she and her husband got together and she conceived and had a son when she had been, in fact, barren. But now this son has suffered a heat stroke, apparently. And they've brought him to his mother from the fields. His father said, carry him to his mother. And he laid on her lap and he died. And she prepares the chariot and gets in it. And she heads out to find the man of God. And Gehazi, Elisha's servant, sees her coming. And Elisha said to Gehazi, go see what she wants. And Gehazi goes out there to her and he says, is it well with thee? Is it well with thy husband? Is it well with the child? Now, was it well? No, her son had just died. Her husband was oblivious to it. He's still working in the field. She herself is a grieving mother. But I want you to notice how she answers. It is well. Do you know why she answers it is well? Because, my beloved, she trusts a God with whom even death is not an obstacle. She knows that he's the God who can raise the dead. If he could open her dead womb and bring conception to her so that she would have a child in her barrenness, then nothing is too hard for If he could make the barren woman to keep house and be a joyful mother of children, she says, it's okay. It is well. It is well. You may know that we sing a hymn in our hymnal written by Horatio Spafford, who was a Chicago businessman. And the story is, no doubt you're familiar, that his family had gone on vacation in front of him. He had last-minute items to attend to in business, and he sent his wife and daughters ahead of him, and they sailed across the Atlantic, and during that voyage, a tragedy occurred, and the ship sunk. Mr. Spafford received a telegram from his wife, saved alone. Their daughters had drowned in the icy waters of the North Atlantic. 
Mr. Spafford boarded a ship soon afterwards and when he came to the approximate place on the icy waters of the Atlantic where his daughters lay buried in that liquid grave, the captain told him, I think this is the place. And Mr. Spafford penned the words to this poem that became the hymn. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll. You ever been there? You've had peace like a river, but have you ever had a season in your life when sorrows rolled like sea billows over your life? He says, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say it is well. It's okay. It is well with my soul. I love the third verse of that song, my sin. Here's the reason you can say it is well. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O oh my soul. I mentioned this morning the family in Georgia that lost their 20-year-old son in an automobile wreck this week. I was interested to notice his mother yesterday posted a little note on her Facebook page with pictures of Ethan on there. In her grief and in her sorrow, this mother said, our boy, Ethan, we love you and we will see you again. We will be right there with you as we walk you to the very end of this journey. With precious hope, I can see you praising Jesus right now. I'll see you soon, sweet boy. I love you. How does a mother deal with the loss of a child like that? By raising a clenched fist toward heaven and saying it's unfair, God, you've done me wrong. Or sweetly saying there's more to this life than the present, but we are made for another world. Heaven is that real to her that she could say, I miss you, I've loved you. But I'm so glad to know you're in the presence of Jesus Christ right now praising him. That was real to her. And that's why she's not immune from the suffering. She hasn't escaped the trouble. And you and I will not either. But my beloved, we can say I trust as believers. It is well with my soul. Because God has not promised me sky's always blue right here. But he has promised me strength for my day. He's promised to be with me. You see, that's a wonderful thought. The reason somebody could say it is well with my soul is because God is his portion. God is more important to me than things, than material possessions, than houses or lands. If I have him, I have it all. The believer already has everything he could ever wish or want if he has Jesus Christ as his friend, as his portion as his all in all. John Kent, a dissenting minister in the 18th century, wrote these words, number 510 in our hymnal. We don't sing the hymn here, but he says, what cheering words are these? Their sweetness, who can tell? In time and to eternity, tis with the righteous will. In every state secure, kept by Jehovah's eye, Tis well with them when life endures, and well when called to die.
See, death's not the ultimate tragedy to the believer. Tis well when joys arise, tis well when sorrows flow. Doesn't mean we enjoy them, but it's okay. Tis well when darkness veils the skies and strong temptations blow. Tis well when on the mount they feast on dying love, and tis as well in God's account when they the furnace prove. It is with the righteous well, it is with the righteous well, in time and to eternity, it is with the righteous well. Can you say it is well with my soul today? It will be well. It is okay, whatever my circumstances, because this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. That's the perspective of faith. And we have the precious promises right now that he will be with us and never leave us nor forsake us. And the greatest promise of all, my beloved, is the breathtaking glory that we will experience when we get home. Richard Baxter used to meditate on heaven every day as a spiritual discipline that helped him to deal with gout and arthritis and living in terrible pain. It also helped him to deal with the loss of his wife when she passed away. One day he wrote in his journal of talking about the pleasures that are at God's right hand forevermore. Oh, the incomprehensible, astonishing glory of heaven. Oh, the rare transcendent beauty, he said. Oh, blessed souls that now enjoy it, that see a thousand times more clearly than what I have seen but darkly at, at this distance and scarce discerned through the interposing clouds. What a difference is there between my state and theirs. I am sighing, they are singing. I am sinning, they are pleasing God. I have an ulcerated cancerous soul like the loathsome bodies of Job or Lazarus, a spectacle of pity to those that behold me, but they are perfect and without blemish. I am here entangled in the love of this world while they are taken up with the love of God. They have none of my cares and fears. They weep not in secret. They languish not in sorrows. These tears are wiped away from their eyes. Oh, happy, a thousand times happy souls. My beloved, heaven is real. Never forget it. It'll help you right now. It shall be well with the righteous. In the moment.